there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Tranquility at home. May I see the hands of those of you who have a model, a model home when it comes to tranquility. Now, some of you are not being honest because you do have model homes. I'd like to visit some of those, but anyway, we all know that there can be improvements. And if you want headings, I have not given you three points for the th- first two talks, but this one does have three points, and I think you can probably not only get them down, but you might even be able to remember them. Love, joy, and peace. Are those the things that characterize your home? It should be. The fruits of the Spirit, we're told, are love, joy, and peace. And all the rest of the fruits of the Spirit, I think, spring from those three things. And as a matter of fact, all of them, it can be said, spring from love. Because if we love God enough and love each other, we will have joy and we will also have peace. So it's interesting to study the list of the fruits of the Spirit because love is the crowning virtue and Jesus said, if you love God and your neighbor, then you will be fulfilling all the commands. And that should be the primary virtue of a Christian home, whether or not you're married and have a husband and children. You have a home of some sort. Maybe it's a dormitory room. Maybe you share a room with somebody else. But that is your place from which you operate. And I believe that we women are called to create homes, whether it's one room or a basement or a beautiful house, it can be a place of tranquility and refreshment to other people. I've lived in quite a variety of homes. When I lived in Ecuador, I think I counted up 14 different places in 11 years where I lived, and almost all of them, well, all except one, were in the jungle, and only one of my jungle houses had an aluminum roof, no two, I guess, and the rest of the time, what does that leave, 11 houses were thatched roofed. And when I lived with the Alcas, the people who had killed my husband, and that's a long story that I don't have time to go into this afternoon, it is told in my book, The Savage, My Kinsman, but I was given the privilege a couple of years after Jim and the other four men died of going in to live with those Indians. And my house had no walls and no floors and no furniture. It was six poles with a thatched roof. And my hammock was strung between two of the poles and Valerie's little slab of bamboo, which was her bed, was underneath my hammock and next to the hammock and the bed, the bed being slab of bamboo about four inches off the ground. We had a fire, obviously, on the mud floor. And I had one change of clothing 
one cooking pot, two plastic bowls, two spoons, no forks, and one knife. And the Alcas were just flabbergasted that two people could possibly have so many things. <laughs> I also had a cake of soap and a flashlight and a Bible and pen and materials that I needed for reducing the language to writing because that's what I was there for. But the only reason that I mention this is that I, to me that was a place of tranquility and peace. It was not my idea of the most comfortable house. There was no way to keep the bugs out and we were tormented 12 hours a day, only 12, not 24, but 12 hours a day by gnats. The gnats would start biting about quarter after six in the morning and they would quit biting about quarter after six at night, for which we were very thankful. There was no way of keeping anything else out of the house either, from dogs and cats to the monkeys that were their pets and snakes, not to mention vampire bats and cockroaches and scorpions and, you know, all the rest of the things that the jungle has. But as Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And this was God's place for me, and I was perfectly happy there. In fact, when I would go out from the uh, Alka settlement, which was about three days by trail and canoe, it took us two days of walking, and one day by canoe to get to the nearest mission station, I would look forward to getting back to my place because this was my home and it was Valerie's home. She was three years old at the time. And I do find contentment in the places where God puts me. I've been in many situations that I can look back on now and think, how did I stand it? And yet I know the answer. The answer is that when that is God's place, then there is the place in which we find contentment. So a home should be a tranquil place, and it should be a place in which love is the rule. And during these few past days with my daughter in the hospital and then back home again, still feeling very weak, I've been taking over her job of homeschooling four of her six children. And I got them to start memorizing Philippians 2, uh, 2 to 4. Paul says, Fill up my cup of happiness by thinking and feeling alike with the same love for one another, the same turn of mind, and a common care for unity. There must be no room for rivalry and personal vanity among you, but you must humbly reckon others better than yourselves. Look to each other's interest and not merely to your own. Now those are very basic Christian principles and very hard for all of us to learn, and extremely difficult to teach children, because these children, when they're born, they are little savages, aren't they? <laughs> We're born rebels. In sin did my mother conceive me, the psalmist said. And so we are born, as it were, shaking our fists 
at the world. And my brother Tom declares up and down that when his baby son was just a tiny little baby, Tom would find him in his crib, literally thrusting his fist skyward in a gesture of defiance. <laughs> and that's characteristic of all of us, isn't it? Some are worse than others, but I think all of us basically are saying, I'm going to do my thing. And it's the job of parents to take these uncivilized little barbarians <laughs> that God gives us and to make of them saints. It's your job as a mother to give saints to God. And that takes far more than any one of us has as a human being. We are not up to the job. And one thing that my daughter finds very irritating, and I'm irritated for her, is people who come up and say, oh, well, you must be a very special person to have six children. She says, I'm not a special person. I don't have six children because I think I'm a super mom or because I think I'm adequate to the job. She said, I want what God wants to give me. And she said, I need his grace and his strength every day of the world. And believe me, Val sheds many tears over the training of her children. So when I'm there, I want to back her up in every way that I can. So while I was homeschooling, I could see that for one thing, these children were talking to each other during homeschool. And I said, now, I'm your grandmother, and when I went to school, we were not allowed to speak to anybody in the classroom without permission. And you must ask the teacher. So I do not want you addressing each other across the table. If you have something to say, you put your hand up, and I will give you permission to speak first to me. So I had them start memorizing this. Now just get a load of what Paul says here. Fill up my cup of happiness by thinking and feeling alike. We don't want to do that, do we? We want to be our own person. And that's another stupid notion that the world has fed us and most of us have swallowed. We're supposed to be our own person. Where do you get that in the Bible? It's not in there. It says we are to think and feel alike with the same love for one another. And believe me, my grandchildren bicker and fight and argue and say nasty things to each other, even though they have a godly father and a godly mother, and I think a very, very ordered and peaceful home compared to a lot of homes I've been in. And so I would say, Elizabeth, is that the way you would talk to me? And she rolls her eyes and she shrugs her shoulders and she says, no. Well, then why do you talk to Walter like that? And then when Jim starts to shout at Colleen, I say, Jim, would you talk that way to Jesus? No. But the Bible says whatever you do to Colleen, you're doing to Jesus. And whatever you refuse to do for Colleen, you are refusing to do for Jesus. Now, these are basic principles, aren't they? Jesus said, in as much as you've done it for one of the least of these, my brethren, one of the least, whether it's the smallest child or the unborn child, you've done it to me. And in as much as you have not done it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you have not done it for me. You remember the context of that verse? 
Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was imprisoned and you came to me. I was sick and you visited me. And in astonishment, they said, when did we ever see you hungry, Lord? When did we ever visit you in prison? When did we ever put clothes on you? And you and I might say, when did we ever iron a shirt for you, Lord? When did we ever clean a bathroom because you were coming? When did we ever make a bed for you? And he will say exactly what he said then. If you've done it for one of these, you've done it for me. That's what love is. Unselfish. Same love for one another, the same turn of mind, and a common care for unity. And I said to my grandchildren, it doesn't make you happy, really, when you're nasty to your brother or your sister. And does it, and, you know, grudgingly, reluctantly, they admit that it doesn't make them happy. The same turn of mind, a common care for unity, then there must be no room for rivalry or personal vanity among you. Well, how come he got two? And they've bought the worldly notion that we're supposed to have equal share of everything. We're not. You know, the 13-year-old has privileges that do not belong to a 10-year-old. The 10-year-old has privileges that don't belong to a 2-year-old. The father has privileges that don't belong to the child. It's not equality in the scriptures. Remember that it says that Jesus did not think equality was something to be grasped at. Even though theologians tell us that the three persons of the Trinity are co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial. Deep theological concepts and there's a sense in which of course it's true Jesus is not less God than God the Father the Holy Spirit is not less God and yet the Holy Spirit witnesses to Christ and Christ obeys the Father he is subject to the Father so anytime you feel as though subjection to a human boss or to a human husband or to a human authority in the church is degrading or demeaning to you, just remember the Trinity. Jesus was not degraded by his submission to the Father. I am not degraded by my submission to my husband. I am degraded only by my refusal to submit. No room for rivalry and personal vanity among you. How many divorces have there been because of rivalry between parents? I'm not supposed to be between husbands and wives. I'm not supposed to be a, a competitor of my husband. I'm supposed to be his help. Meet for his need. Do you know what that word meet, M-E-E-T, means? It just means fit, suitable, adaptable. It's we wives who are primarily to do the adapting. Well, I don't think I feel really comfortable with that. I mean, isn't my husband supposed to do any adapting? Well, of course he is. He's supposed to lay down his life for you if he's going to love you as Christ loved the church. It's not my business to see to it that my husband lays down his life. It is my business 
to submit. And by the same token, it's not my husband's business to see to it that I submit. It is my husband's business to be my head as Christ is head of the church, which means sacrificial love. And if he does that, of course, it would be much easier for me to submit. But there isn't a husband in the world that's ever done that perfectly. Why not? Because he's a sinner. Because there isn't anything else to marry. (laughs) Nor have we wives submitted gladly, wholeheartedly, as the church is to submit to Christ. Because we're a bunch of miserable offenders, too. So these are the rules. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You must humbly reckon others better than yourselves. Look to each other's interest and not merely to your own. Is that an easy concept to exemplify in your life? If you don't exemplify it in your life, it's going to be very difficult to teach to your children. How can you teach your children not to look at their own interest? Well, they're very small, but very significant ways of doing that. You don't grab the plate of cookies first. You pick up the plate of cookies, and what do you do? You pass it to that little brother that you don't think ought to have a cookie first. And he might take the biggest one. You You pass the butter to your daddy. And this every day, in every way, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little, you're teaching these children the principle, my life for yours, the principle of the cross. That is what love is about. Love has nothing to do with feelings, according to scripture. And if there's a difficult concept to get across nowadays it's that one because love is a, is a feeling love is a sentiment love is a mood love is feeling good about somebody that is rubbish do you think Christ laid down his life for me because he felt good about me while we were sinners He died for us. While we had not the slightest inkling of a thought in his direction, he laid down his life. Love gives itself. Love seeks the interest, the best interest, of the other person. Never its own. And if you want the perfect picture of what love is, you know the chapter to look at, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient when it doesn't want to be patient. Love has to be patient because a lot of people do a lot of things that make us impatient. Love is kind when people are unkind. Love envies no one when there are a lot of people who have things that we don't have. And I'm not just talking about cars and RVs and recreational places to go. What about the people who have gifts that you don't have? Love envies no one. 
Love is never boastful, nor conceited, nor rude. You can quote that verse to your children when they say, well, I don't see why we have to learn all these table manners. I mean, what difference does it make what fork you use or where you put the knife or whether you fold your napkin up? It just oils the wheels of social intercourse, doesn't it? It makes life easy. It makes the wheels go around if you're courteous to each other. You behave as courteously to each other at home as you would behave to a stranger on the street. And isn't it dreadful that we treat strangers with much greater respect sometimes than we do with our own family, the people we love the most? Love is never conceited nor rude, never selfish. Not quick to take offense. Love is not touchy. Yeah, but she really insulted me, you know. I mean, that was uncalled for, what she said to me. Well, maybe it was, but love does not take offense. She might have intended to offend you, but love doesn't take offense. Just, I'm not going to take it, that's all. I will not take offense if I love God. Love, how about this one? Love keeps no score of wrongs. Has your husband ever hurt your feelings? And you start thinking of what he said just now and what he said yesterday and that thing he said a week ago, and you've got quite a list. And right now you're feeling very virtuous because you haven't snapped back with a nasty retort, but the next time you are going to read the list to him. And another thing. Love does not keep score of wrongs. Does not gloat over other people's sins, but delights in the truth. There is nothing love cannot face. There is no limit to its faith, its hope, and its endurance. As Philip's translation of that verse says, love is the one thing that still stands when everything else has fallen. Love endures. And our model is the love of Jesus. We are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Tranquility at home comes from seeking the well-being of the other. And you just have to continually repeat and reiterate. This is the rule when your children are saying, but he, my parents who raised six children also, whenever there was a squabble, they would separate the two children that were squabbling, and then they would ask individually for the story, what happened. And the minute we said, well, he, she would stop us. Mother would stop us and she'd say, I don't want to know what he did. I want to know what you did. And it's amazing how different the stories can be if you separate the kids and they don't know what the other one has said. But if you seek the well-being of the other person, these things wouldn't happen, would they? And the two-year-old and the four-year-old of my children, my grandchildren, 
they play very happily and sweetly together a lot of the time, but then every once in a while they both decide that they're going to play with the same toy at the same time. And there's the point at which you start specifically reiterating to the four-year-old that she must learn to give in to the two-year-old. Not always, but are you thinking about loving that child? And one of the things that I've asked my grandchildren several times this week is, what if he were dead? What if your brother was killed? You know, he, he's making you so furious now. How would you feel if he died? Well, I'd feel sad because you love him, don't you? You really do love him. Yeah. But he... No, in fact, we're back to square one. Well, love seeks the well-being of the other. The second thing that brings tranquility at home is joy. And joy springs from an utter surrender of all that we are and have and do and suffer. A surrender of our rights. Acceptance and surrender. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. Do you take that primarily to mean our necessary food? physical food or does it have a broader meaning to you now to me it has a much broader meaning than that I the older I get the more I use that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples for one thing because we know that we're praying right when we pray that and I I realize how foolish some of my prayers are how pitifully uh, immature how far from the mark of God's will and how ignorant I am when I pray. I don't really know what's best. I have all sorts of ideas of what I want and what I want for my children. But when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, he said, when you pray, say this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And now to me, in my old age, that really has become a very basic prayer. Lord, give me today anything that you know is good for me. And a sort of an uh, expansion of that prayer is a wonderful orthodox morning prayer that I picked up somewhere and I can't remember where but the words are these O Lord grant me to greet the coming day in peace help me in all things to rely upon your holy will in every hour of the day reveal your will to me bless my dealings with all who surround me teach me to treat all that comes to me with peace of soul and with firm conviction that your will governs all In unforeseen events, let me not forget that all are sent by you. In all my deeds and words, guide my thoughts and feelings. Teach me to act lovingly, firmly, and wisely without embittering or embarrassing others. Grant me strength to bear the, to bear the fatigues of the coming day. 
direct my will, teach me to pray, pray you yourself in me. In other words, to summarize it again, I'm saying, give me your my daily bread, Lord. You know exactly what I need. So hand your will to me, as it were, on a platter, and I'll take it. Now, I want specifically to mention marital status here, because I don't know who the singles are here, whether you're never married or used to be married, whether you used to be married and are no longer a wife because of death or divorce, both of which are really the result of original sin, aren't they? There wouldn't be such a thing as death if it hadn't been for the sin in the garden, and there certainly wouldn't be such a thing as divorce. Or whether you're married. I believe that your marital status is your daily bread on this particular Saturday. Now, I don't know whether God has widowhood for some of you who have husbands now in the near future, or whether God might have a husband for you this coming Tuesday or Wednesday, those of you who are not married now and are longing to be married. The point is, we only have today. I've had people say to me, well, how do you know that you've got the gift of singleness? I have not met very many people that feel that they have the gift of singleness in the sense that God does not want them ever to be married. Now, there are people who are called in that way, as Amy Carmichael was. And if you read her biography, which I hope you will, called A Chance to Die, you'll find in there that she probably had at least two proposals, maybe three. I had a very difficult time trying to sort out some of the facts of her life because she was so very careful not to talk about herself and she did not give confidences to many people but I do believe that she had probably two or three proposals but at any rate it was very clear that she knew God had called her to the single life she didn't know at that time that God would ultimately make her the mother of hundreds of Indian children as she began to work for Hindu babies that were surrendered to the Hindu temples for prostitutional purposes or homosexual purposes. And God gave her this wonderful vision and brought these children to her, and that work is still going in South India called the Donover Fellowship. But as I say, I don't know very many people with that kind of conviction. But when people say to me, well, how can I know if God wants me to stay single the rest of my life? All I can say is you probably are not going to know that God wants you to be single the rest of your life. But when I had to struggle as a college student with the fact that I probably would be single for the rest of my life, I had no prospects at all, and I was on a Christian college campus, and I was moving into what we called uh, senior panic, because if you don't meet a husband on a Christian college campus, where else are you ever going to be where there will be so many unattached males? So... I had to surrender that. I had to give it all to the Lord and say, Lord, you know that my deep desire is to be a wife and a mother, if that's your will. But when I was 12 years old, I said, Lord, I'll take your will, whatever it is. So I just thought, well, it's probably going to be singleness. But my answer to the people who say, how can I know, is, are you single today? Yes. This is the will of God for you on this particular Saturday. And that's all you need to know. Give us this day our daily bread. Remember that when God sent manna to the children of Israel, 
he told them that they were not allowed to gather manna for tomorrow, except on the day before the Sabbath. If they gathered manna any other day, more than they could eat, it bred worms. And that's a spiritual principle. Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow will take thought for the things of itself. And I am learning. Don't mistake me to be saying I have learned, but I certainly am learning. And it is getting easier for me to believe that acceptance of whatever this day brings is the root to joy. It's the root to tranquility. Root, R-O-U-T-E, pathway. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is the definitive verse for this lesson. The Lord is near. Have no anxiety about anything. That's a command. But in everything, make your requests known to God in prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Then the peace of God, which is beyond our utmost understanding, will keep guard over your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. And I know of a missionary to Japan named Irene Webster Smith who took as her life verse those three words, everything by prayer. And I really do try to make everything a matter of prayer, including finding a parking place. Can you imagine last Saturday afternoon trying to find a parking place in a mall near Mission Viejo? Saturday afternoon in December? Well, it took me about a half an hour. But I prayed and I left my daughter off so she could be shopping while I was finding the parking place. But in everything, let your requests be made known unto God. And God is telling us to make our requests, even as stupid as they may be. We are as silly as a little child saying, can I have another ice cream cone just before supper? A wise parent will say no to that. And only God knows what's good for me. So I make my requests. But the bottom line is, if these don't fit in, Lord, with your will, please scratch them. Because what I want more than anything else in the world is that your will should be done. And it gives me joy. It is the root to joy. And try to remember to thank God that you're single today. It is here in the status of singleness or widowhood or even divorce. It is in this unchangeable situation that you find yourself in right now. And it's unchangeable for you. God can change it, of course. But this is what he's handed to you. Are you prepared to say, Yes, Lord, I'll take it. It is here that I want to glorify you as a single woman. When Jim died, I realized that God had given me a new set of marching orders. I wouldn't have chosen widowhood. Who would? There's one lady here today that told me she's lost three husbands. Who would choose it? But I saw widowhood as God's gift to me in the sense that he wanted to make himself known to me in it and he had a job for me to do as a widow that I couldn't have done as a wife. So that gives me joy. That gives me tranquility. 
And the peace of God, which is beyond our utmost understanding, will keep guard over your hearts and your thoughts in Christ Jesus. And the third thing I want to say about tranquility at home is peace. And I believe that a peaceful home must be founded on a structure of authority. First of all, the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of a home in which I was reared. We had a little brass plate over the doorbell button at the front door that said, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. And that created an atmosphere of the fear of God and of submission to authority. And my parents set the example of their submission and obedience by being seven-day-a-week Christians. They were not hypocrites. Whatever we six can say about mistakes that they made, and we find them to be very few, none of us would deny that our parents were absolutely open, above-board, honest, truthful, and what they said, they lived by. What they taught us, they also disciplined themselves to obey. So the structure of authority begins with the authority of the word of Christ himself. My parents taught us the respect for his word, the Bible, and we were read to at least twice a day out of the Bible. Every morning after breakfast, we all had to go into the living room, we sang a hymn together, consequently memorized hundreds of hymns with all the verses, and we listened to our father read the Bible, and then we were all asked to kneel while he prayed, and then we joined in saying the Lord's Prayer together at the end. In the evening after supper, we were not excused from the table until he had read the Bible and prayed for us again. And then up until we were probably eight or nine or ten years old each night we would be tucked in individually by one of our parents who would pray a third time and both parents prayed privately for us so there was a lot of prayer going on there was no question as to who was the head of our home my father understood his responsibility and that is not an option if i were talking to a group of men here i would sock it to them that this is not optional. It's not something that a husband and wife sit down and work out according to their tastes and preferences. It says the husband is the head of the wife, not ought to be or should try to be, but he is, whether he likes it or not. And then, of course, the authority of the parents over the children is the representation of the authority of God. Up until the child becomes an adult, he must be subject to the authority of his parents. And one of the most pitiful spectacles that Lars and I are in a position to observe so often is Christian parents who unfortunately have not had this kind of training and have not seen this example in their own homes, they have no idea how to control a child. And you can see who is running the home. It's the two-year-old. 
and another outrageous maxim that we've picked up from the world is that two-year-olds are supposed to be terrible. The terrible twos. Well, they're not terrible. They're marvelous little creatures. I have a two-year-old granddaughter right now, and she is a charmer. But she needs to be trained and taught and brought under restraint and spanked every once in a while. And Valerie has a paint stirrer handy in practically every room, or a small switch. My mother had a little switch, just a thin little switch that she kept over the door of every room in the house. Now, we didn't get spanked a lot because our parents started soon enough. Usually, all my mother needed to do was to raise her eyes to the top of the door, (laughs) and we knew what was coming, and we jumped. You know that great hymn, some of you do, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who to Jesus for refuge have fled. Do you believe that God means what he says? Then as a parent, you have to make your child believe that you mean exactly what you say the first time. And here's one of the most common errors, repeating commands. First of all, you've got to get the child's attention. It's no good yelling at him across a room while you're doing something over here at the sink. Put that down! And then you don't see whether he's put it down. You have to look Johnny in the eye and say, Johnny, put that down. And he will know by the eye contact and by the quiet tone of voice that you are serious. I have a very dear friend named Arlita who raised five wonderful children. They're all adults now. And she said, the more serious I was, the quieter my voice became. (laughs) And of course, the more you scream and the more you yell, the deafer the child gets. And if you're going to say something five times, what are you teaching him? You've trained the child to know that the first four times don't count. The first two commands that a child must learn, and he must learn these by the time he's a year old, are know and come. And it is possible to teach a one-year-old child not to touch and to come. But if when you say, come here, I said come here, Come here, Johnny. If you don't come here, I'm going to thank you. Come here. And finally, you give up and you jump and you grab him. He knows he never has to budge because you're going to grab him. And you're going to say it five times or six times until you get so angry you want to hit him. And that's where child abuse begins. You know, child abuse and spankings are poles apart because a spanking is a calm, ordered, measured piece of discipline given by a parent who is in control. Well, as you can imagine, I could go on for a couple of more hours on this subject. I don't have time to do that. Get his attention, get his eye contact, speak in a normal tone of voice, and speak once. And if you've been doing it wrong, then you go home and you sit your little boy down and you say, I learned something today. (laughs) And 
from now on, do you see this little switch or this ruler or this paint stirrer? This is going to be the Board of Education. <laughs> Tranquility in the home. It comes from love which seeks the well-being of the other person. A parent who does not discipline his child, the Bible says, hates him. Joy comes from receiving with thanksgiving our daily bread, whatever that is. And peace comes from submission to the authority of Christ in my own life, the surrender to him in prayer of everything. The principle of authority, the authority of the word, that decision that we talked about this morning, which is non-negotiable, I will do the will of God. And a total, glad, unreserved surrender. May God give us the grace to seek tranquility only in his will. There is no other safe place in the universe. I trust that each of you in your own heart, right now, will make up your mind something that you're going to transact with God. Perhaps right in this room, perhaps when you get home. Some specific difference that this day is going to make in your life. The Lord God will help me, says Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.